have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions taking place during the course of the program. Uh, all you need to do is to pick up the phone, uh, dial 0208-687-7878 and share your thoughts with us. Alternatively, you can t- uh, tweet us at the Voice of Islam uh, UK. Uh, the, uh, uh, Twitter has a new uh, boss now in Elon Musk. Uh, I think he bought it for something like 38 uh, billion pounds. Uh, but that's not uh, going to change uh, its use as far as we are concerned. So uh, please, if uh, that is the platform you prefer to uh, communicate with us, then please do use it. Our Twitter handle is Voice of Islam UK. Um, in a few minutes' time, we'll begin with a rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. Won't be spending too much time on each, uh, trying to rattle through as many as possible through the first half hour. Anyway... As I mentioned before, you can have your say on any of the issues we may be discussing. The number is 0208-687-7878. Or uh, uh, you can use Twitter. Um, the Twitter handle is Voice of Islam UK. Now, those uh, familiar with the show will know uh, we normally uh, have two main topics that we focus uh, particular attention on. Uh, Today, the first uh, topic that we're going to be uh, uh, dealing with in some depth is to do with eating habits and the uh, battle that many have in controlling uh, their weight. Uh, So the title of this particular topic is Eating Late Increases Hunger, Decreases Calories Burned and Changes Fat Tissue. Uh, so that's the title of our first topic. It's something we picked up from the Science Daily website, and we'll be reviewing this topic with uh, Dr. Duane Meller, who is uh, a double award-winning registered dietitian from Aston University. Uh, we'll be discussing the subject between 7.30 and 8.15, if my notes are correct. Yes, it's 7.30 to 8.15. Um, so if you are interested in this particular topic, make sure you tune in during those times. Uh, and as mentioned, uh, please do feel free to share your thoughts on any of the uh, topics we may be discussing by ringing uh, 0208-687-7878 or using uh, the Twitter platform um, and our uh, uh, handle is Voice of Islam UK. Uh, moving on to the second of our main topics, uh, another one that was prompted by something we found on the Science Daily website. Uh, it's about... Um, uh, the attention we have to provide our children when they are growing up uh, since uh, deprivation apparently can lead to problems later in life. Researchers detect early deprivation continues to affect brain development well into adolescence. That's the title of the subject. Uh, we were addressing this from uh, after uh, quarter past eight. Uh, and to further our understanding of this topic, we expect to be speaking to Dr. Thomas Campbell, who currently works, um, I think he's um, a clinical neuropsychologist uh, with individuals, families, and staff groups. So lots to do, lots to cover. 
And as always, we have a full review of the Islamic angle to all we discuss from our two Imams, Imam uh, Toki Tanwir and Imam Farid Ahmed. So without further ado, I'll uh, pass the mic on to uh, uh, Imam Farid Ahmed for the weather. Oh yeah, good morning. Today, the heavy rain in the west, in the west will quickly sweep northeastwards across the UK, but should be fairly light and patchy to the southeast. Turning drier in the afternoon with sunny spells tonight. This evening will start with dry conditions and plenty of clear spells. Thicker cloud will gradually build in from the south, bringing spells of rain across most of Wales and England by dawn. Zakala, thank you very much. Zakala. Um, Imam Tokir will uh, give us uh, uh, something about uh, the news that is uh, taking place in the um, Amdi Muslim community. Before he does that, let me just uh, start off with uh, what the Australian footballers have been uh, doing. They made a video criticizing the World Cup host treatment of migrant workers and LGBTQ plus people. Uh, they're, um, and they're going to be one of the nine nations that have decided to wear one of armbands to protest Qatari laws around same-sex relationships. And not long ago, Australia became notorious for not letting the tennis star Novak Djokovic, uh, Djokovic enter the country for the Australian Open because he was not conforming to Australian rules. Not everyone else, um, not everyone elsewhere had adopted such a draconian COVID policy as Australians had, but everyone respected the right of Australia to enact its rules and regulations as it deemed fit. Perhaps those Australian footballers should remember this when conducting their protests, especially coming from a nation that was built on the genocide of the indigenous peoples of entire continent of Australia. So that's something food for thought. If you d- disagree with that statement or agree with that statement, either way, do call in and uh, let uh, uh, let your thoughts uh, uh, share your thoughts with the rest of the listeners. Over to you, Mount Tavisa. Assalamualaikum. I hope uh, everyone is doing well this morning. Um, you know, as as this is the uh, month of autumn and October, um, we have the uh, the main event within within the UK is the called the Halloween, um, and uh, I thought as this is verse of Islam, uh, it would be um, it would be it'd be important to look at what does Islam say with regards to Halloween. So uh, this is the most uh, commercialized event of the year, one of the most commercialized event of the year where kids, they dress up as ghosts, vampires, monsters and other beings. (coughs) Now, in actuality, this is related to pagan beliefs (coughs) as the Celtic festival of death starting of their new year. So the Celts, they believe that souls of the dead uh, they re-entered the world and the Celts uh, would seek guidance from them about the new coming year and witches would act as mediums through which these souls and uh, dark spirits could be reached. So uh, Siwin w- was a day um, of renouncing God and pleading allegiance to the devil and while casting evil spells and back in 1610 AD, the Catholic Church deemed the October 31st to be All Hallows' Eve Day. On that day, they would commemorate all known and unknown saints. Uh, this was their attempt in abolishing this pagan practice. 
which had become common on that day. Uh, however, um, that did not uh, make much of a difference, and all Hallow's Eve changed to Halloween. And Halloween, uh, this is now uh, celebrating the dead and calling them to the known future, casting spells and uh, denouncing God. So all this comes under shirk, uh, associating other things, other beings, other deities with God Almighty. Hence, uh, we should avoid um, all such practices as these are all vain acts. And and shirk, um, it is very interesting uh, that back in uh, 610 AD, uh, the church, they actually deemed 31st of October as All Hallows Eve Day and, and the whole purpose behind that was uh, to commemorate all those known so uh, known and unknown saints um, and, and the whole purpose of that was to try to uh, abolish the pagan belief uh, that I had adopted before that however um, this itself um, now has become uh, a custom now where um, children especially they dress up as uh, witches and, and different monsters and then go to different doors and collect treats but if we go back to uh, the origins of it we find that in actuality um, this this is uh, this itself is from a pagan belief however this is uh, a lot more commercialized now according to the Islamic stance we would not uh, take part in this as this uh, is a form of shirk, you know, associating partners with God. So uh, we should we should avoid such acts. Mm. So this is the Islamic stance on on this on this particular mm. um, subject. I wanted to share with the listeners. Well, thank you very much. Um, on to um, news that is circulating in the media. Well, uh, we on the uh, Friday breakfast show have always been f- the first to deliver major stories emerging in the wider media. Uh, the Brexit, Brexit result, for example, was first announced on the breakfast show on Friday. Uh, the results of the 2019 elections, similarly. Uh, the demise of the Queen uh, was also first announced on this breakfast show on Friday. And the resignation of her last Prime Minister, too. And um, we were hoping to break the news uh, of the uh, story of the new Prime Minister being installed first on this breakfast show. But uh, alas, the election process did not last this long and was resolved on Monday without the need for um, conservative members to vote. So, uh, it, well, we lost our thunder on that. But anyway, uh, the big story of the week is the uh, installation of the new Prime Minister in Rishi Sunak taking charge on Tuesday. Uh, much has been made of him being the first Briton of Indian origin to assume this position. Uh, it is used to show how free from prejudice this uh, country has become in enabling even someone non-white and non-Christian to a top position. Uh, what makes this so remarkable is that not so long ago before uh, this, station, this nation was steeped in racial prejudice, uh, Winston Churchill, no less, is reported to have said, and I quote, I hate Indian people. They are beastly people with a beastly religion, uh, close of quote. Uh, he must be turning in his grave, as the expression goes, now that a British Asian professing an Indian religion is head of his Conservative Party and Prime Minister of his country, the UK. 
uh, be that as it may, it shows just how a few decades ago racial and religious intolerance uh, reigned in these lands. While we may rejoice at this, uh, we may rejoice at this positive transformation of our values recently. We should not forget that this change was advocated more than 14 centuries ago by Islam in a society at that time that was ridden with racial and social prejudice. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, elevated a freed black slave, Bilal, to be the very first caller to prayer. And due to his conduct, not color or social standing, he was given due respect by other companions who would stand out of respect when he entered a room. And of course, it was the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who declared that no Arab has any superiority over a non-Arab, and no colored individual has precedence over a white and vice versa. Their superiority over each other lay only on the basis of their righteousness, fear of God, in other words. In other words, their good conduct. And the same is the case, it was mentioned by Imam Tokir in a previous show as well, but I think it needs to be repeated again, of uh, the freed slave, uh, uh, an Arab, but one of Yemeni origin, not from the Qureshi or any other elite tribe, and what's more, a freed slave. And he was treated uh, like a son by the Holy Prophet and was put uh, often in charge over all others when the Holy Prophet was sending out an expedition. In fact, historians note that there is no expedition that the Holy Prophet, the peace be upon him, dispatched of which Zayed, Zayed was a member and he was not put in charge. Then the son of Zayed, Usama, though the progeny of a freed slave, was also appointed head of an expedition. An expedition that uh, consisted of such senior Qureshis as Abu Bakr and Umar, thus putting people in charge on merit, irrespective of the race and social standing, may be new to us in the UK, and one to be celebrated with the appointment of our uh, Prime Minister. But we should not forget that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was doing this 1400 years ago. And this strain of thought of appointing people on merit was certainly continued after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And the one example that, be, that can be quoted is of Suheb, the Roman, born in Iraq, but was enslaved by the Romans and eventually found his way uh, as a slave uh, to Mecca. He gained his freedom after accepting Islam, but his slave background was not permitted to create a stigma against him. In fact, when Hazrat Umar was dying, after he was fatally wounded, he appointed this person, Zuhayb, a former slave, to lead uh, the Muslims in prayers until a new Khalifa was elected. So once more, and uh, we need to repeat this again and again, let's remind ourselves again and again of the excellence and wise teachings of Islam that have been ignored by societies for as long and are only now being adopted by the West 1400 years later. And it is hoped that if these uh, are the kind of teachings that are now being adopted by the West nowadays, let's hope that other teachings of Islam are also taken on board in the same way. Uh, there's, there's a very uh, interesting article here um, on Al-Hakam um, and uh, this uh, someone's opinion on the three weeks of heaven on earth in the USA. So this is regarding the Torah's holiness uh, did recently of USA 
from uh, 26th of September to 17th of October 2022. Um, and uh, Dr. Naseem Rahmatullah, he's written a few words on this. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted to share that with the listeners. He writes that uh, with the help of Allah the Almighty, we in the USA plan to capitalize on this and achieve higher levels of spiritual severity and stability and we commit to doing good deeds and worshipping and remembering Allah much. Being attached to Khilafat fosters this. For such people, these are two heavens and one here and one in the hereafter. As Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran in chapter 55 verse 47, that uh, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, but for him who fears to stand before his Lord, there are two gardens. And he writes that the ultimate al-Jannah, the heaven on earth, was the coming of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The advent of the Holy Prophet is described metaphorically as the appearance of God Almighty. He was al-Abd, and the Quran calls him Abdullah, the servant of Allah, the exemplar uh, per excellence. And in the latter days, God in his mercy sent us the most adherent devotee of and servant of that servant of Allah, but the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. It was revealed to the promised Messiah that uh, I have sent down paradise with you. Um, so although the presence of prophets of God amongst mankind is paradise on earth the revelation to the promised messiah would indicate that god would through the promised messiah institute a dynamic system uh, that would lead to god and paradise for the coming generation and today the the khilafat the is heaven on earth and being attached to khilafat and being obedient to it keeps us in a heavenly state and the difference between heaven on earth and heaven in the hereafter is that we can be expelled uh, from this heaven because of our disobedience and this does not happen in the hereafter uh, where we are inculcated against mishaps and our only effort are to say that our Lord perfect our light for us and forgive us surely thou hast power over all things this from chapter 66 verse 9 so we as we transition from this world to the next the focus should be on righteousness and striving to achieve the state where Allah says that and thou O soul at peace return to thy Lord well pleased with him and he will pleased with thee so enter thou amongst my chosen servants and enter thou my garden this from chapter 89 verse 28 to 30 so a very very beautiful peace is written and uh, that uh, clearly, you know, shows that truly being uh, close in the presence of the Khalif of the Amdi Muslim Kuti was as if, um, you know, is heaven on earth. And he explains that through the reference of the Holy Quran. So uh, very, very beautiful uh, from that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, on to some of the stories that are featuring in the wider media. Uh, Shell profits soar uh, with the price of energy rising as it has. It's no wonder the energy companies like BP and Shell are raking in colossal profits. Uh, Shell reported, and this has been widely uh, widely circulated, uh, it's reported uh, profits in the last quarter 
amounting to 8.2 billion pounds, uh, taking its annual profits uh, to 26 billion. Um, and uh, this is uh, something that's doubled uh, to what it achieved last year. Uh, despite this, um, Shell is not having to pay any uh, energy levy uh, that uh, was introduced by the Boris government uh, when Mr. Sunak was Chancellor to tax windfall profits that were to be utilised in assisting households in the cost of living crisis. Uh, five billion was expected to be raised, uh, but this is uh, um, none of it, or there's going to be none of this uh, so far uh, from Shell. Uh, why? Because in averting the additional tax, there are loopholes, and the one being utilised in the case of Shell is that the company is diverting its additional profits to heavy spending on drilling more oil in the North Sea, which means that these profits are exempt from further taxation. Uh, no wonder opposition parties are up in arms and urging the government to apply a proper windfall tax that does raise money for the underprivileged. Uh, Ed Miliband, the Shadow Secretary for Climate Change and Net Zero, criticised ludicrous tax breaks, he described them, uh, for oil companies. And he said the fact that Shell recorded the second highest quarterly profits in the company's history is further proof that we need a proper windfall tax to make the energy companies pay their fair share. Uh, Francis O'Grady, the TUC General Secretary, said that the profits were obscene, adding the uh, government has run out of excuses. It must impose a higher windfall tax on oil and gas companies. The likes of Shell are treating families like cash machines. Uh, end of quote. Uh, there is pressure on the government to change tack here. Uh, the much-anticipated fiscal statement uh, that was going to be uh, that was going to be announced on Halloween, the 31st of November, uh, 31st of October, sorry, has been moved to the 17th of November now. It is expected to show how, in the current crisis, cuts may well have to be made, including in our public services. Uh, if these are not accompanied with real and firm commitments to draw on windfall profits then there will be a hue and cry over this uh, lending the government's levelling up strategy hollow. Uh, so we'll see how this develops. Um, certainly we'll be, um, uh, our, um, we will be honing in on this particular aspect when the um, uh, fiscal statement uh, details are announced. Another uh, criticism that the uh, uh, government is uh, facing is on its uh, Rwanda policy. Um, it's brutal. Uh, this is the verdict of the former Home Secretary Amber Heard. She's a Conservative member of, uh, or she was a Conservative member of the Parliament. The Rwanda policy was established in April to take some asylum seekers who crossed the channel to the UK on a one-way ticket to e the East African country uh, to claim asylum there instead. Under the scheme, uh, which runs to discourage uh, people from unsafe routes. Migrants uh, deliberately entering the UK illegally from a safe country would be swiftly returned to their home country or relocated to Rwanda. Ms. Amber Heard did not pull any punches when she stated that I think, and I quote, it is a brutal policy which we should not have introduced anyway, but it is also putting that aside um, impractical 
Uh, she says, I just don't believe it will ever happen. And she added that the growing numbers of people putting their lives in danger to get, the UK, to, get to the UK was a shared problem with the French. I hope, she said, that this new government is going to address it by having a better relationship uh, with the French. I mean, let's face it, it can only improve. Uh, she has suggested that it would be better to improve relations with the French if we are to stop these crossings. And what others are saying is that we do not have sufficient legal means of people seeking asylum to get to these shores. If we are genuinely wanting to be seen as a humane nation, giving refuge to the beaten, the downtrodden, the deprived, the persecuted, then we should be large-hearted, big-hearted, and big-hearted enough to create plenty of easily accessible avenues through which people can come to these shores legally. The contrary argument is that we have limited resources in a country, a country that is passing through a cost-of-living crisis, and therefore our capacity to cater for those seeking asylum is limited, and thus measures have to be taken accordingly. don't know what your view are, uh, views are. If you do have a view and you want to share it with us, then the number to ring is 0208-687-7878, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Yes, yes, yes uh, so uh, uh, on uh, this particular month, another particular festival which uh, you know people do enjoy on the 24th of October, um, the Hindu community in general, is the festival of Diwali across three religions. So uh, Diwali is a major festival observed by Hindus, Jains and Sikhs and it is celebrated on the 13th day of the dark half of the lunar month and Ashvina to the second day of light uh, half of the lunar month um, Kartika so the term Diwali this comes from the Sanskrit word uh, Dipwali which translates as to row of lights a name befitting the purpose because in a nutshell Hindus, Jains and Sikhism they all celebrate Diwali to signify the uh, prevalence of light over darkness and on Diwali houses are decorated with windows and doors left open in the hopes of inviting Lakshmi who Hindus believe to be the goddess of prosperity small diyas on uh, earthenware lamps filled with oil are also lit up in row and the significance of the celebration varies uh, from area to area whether celebrating the homecoming of Rama after defeating the ten-headed demon king Krishna's defeat to of the de- demon uh, Nakashura or the marriage of Lakshmi and Vishnu to name a few so interestingly this year's Diwali falls on the same day that the UK sees its first uh, British Asian Hindu Prime Minister Richie Sunak who will uh, who has uh, obviously uh, become the prime minister? Uh, so th- he, you know, he's also <laughs> nominated in within the same time frame. So the right to rise that millions around the world today will be celebrating Diwali, also known as the Festival of Light, <coughs> and it is yet another celebration in the Mosaic world faiths. <coughs> which would be respected equally alongside the celebration of other religions. And his very uh, respect and honor, which can lead to the light of tolerance, unity, harmony, ultimately peace in our world. 
so that's just a little overview of uh, what what Diwali is. No, thank you very much. It's important that we should uh, know about this and uh, remind ourselves of other faiths and other celebrations. Um, uh, we will be now uh, that we've done the uh, news review, going on to the first of our main topics. It will be introduced by Imam Farid uh, Ahmed, who's been quiet for uh, so far, but uh, we'll be hearing from him very shortly. Uh, and this is uh, something that we picked up from one of the websites. Uh, it's the Science Daily website, as is the second of our main topics. The second of our main topics, which we'll be looking at uh, at 8.15 or thereabouts, is uh, researchers detect early deprivation continues to affect brain development well into adolescence. So that will be the second of our main topics. But the first of our main topics is about uh, eating and uh, hunger. So uh, without further ado, let's pass the mic on to uh, Imam Farid to learn more about this. Oh yeah. So the first topic we have today is eating late increases hunger, decreases calories burned, and changes fat tissue. So obesity afflicts approximately 42% of U.S. adult population and contributes to the onset of chronic diseases, including diabetes, cancer, and other conditions. While popular healthy diet mantras advise against midnight snacking, few studies have comprehensively investigated the simultaneous effects of late eating on the three main players of body weight regulation and thus obesity risk. Regulation of calorie intake, the number of calories you burn, and the molecular changes in fat tissue. A few study, a new study by investigators from Brigham and Women's Hospital, a founding member of the Mass General Brigham Healthcare System, found that when we eat significantly impacts our energy expenditure, appetite, molecular pathway, pathways in adipose tissue their results are published in cell metabolism Vuovich Skier and their team studied 16 patients with a body mass index BMI in the overweight or obese range each participant completed two laboratory protocols one with a strictly scheduled early meal schedule and the other with the exact same meals each scheduled about four hours later in the day. In the last two or three weeks before starting each of the in-laboratory protocols, participants maintained fixed sleep and wake schedules. And in the final three days before entering the laboratory, they strictly followed identical diets and meal schedules at home. In the lab, participants regularly documented their hunger and appetite provided frequently frequent small blood samples throughout the day and had their body temperature and energy expenditure measured. To measure how eating time affected molecular pathways involved in adipogenesis or how the body stores fat, investigators collected biopsies of adipose tissue from the subset of participants during laboratory testing in both the early and the late eating protocols. 
to enable comparison of gene expression patterns levels between these two eating conditions. Results revealed that eating later had profound effects on hunger and appetite regulating hormones leptin and ghrelin while influence while which influence our drive to eat specifically levels of hormone leptin which signals were decreased across the 24 hours in the late eating conditions compared to the early eating conditions when participants ate late they also burned calories at a slower rate and exhibited adipose tissue gene expression towards increased adip adipogenesis and decreased lipolysis which promote fat growth notably these findings convey converging psychological and molecular mechanisms underlining the correlation between late eating and increased obesity risk. Wovich explains that these findings are not only consistent with the large body of research suggesting that eating later may increase one's likelihood of developing obesity, but they shed new light on how the midnight how it might occur. By using a randomized crossover study and tightly controlling behavioral and environmental factors such as physical activity, posture, sleep, and light exposure, investigators were able to detect changes the different control systems involved in energy balance, a marker of how our bodies use food we consume. In future studies, Skier's team aims to recruit more women to increase generalizability of their finding to broader population. While the study cohort includes included only five female participants, the study was set up to control for menstrual phase, reducing confounding but making recruiting women more difficult. Going forward, Skier and Wovich are also interested in better understanding and effects of the relationship between meal time and bedtime of energy balance. Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, we are hoping to be speaking to uh, Dr. Dwayne Meller uh, on this issue. Um, so he is uh, a <coughs> double award winning registered dietitian uh, um, from Aston Medical School. Um, so we hope that he'll be putting uh, he'll be put through um, in a few minutes' time. Um, Imam Tafir, is there anything that you want to add from an Islamic point of view, perhaps? Uh, yes, um, I mean this is a very interesting uh, topic, um, and it's uh, you know looking at eating uh, late increases hunger, decreases calories uh, burned, and change into fat tissue. Um, so you know from an islamic uh, point of view uh, just as we do look after our prayers and um you know our prayers are at their appointed time similarly when it comes to eating as well uh, we should also look after our eating and not eat excessively i mean there is a 
an oration of the early prophet peace be upon him where he says that uh, you should drink uh, half you should uh, y- sorry you should drink one third you should eat one third and uh, one third should be left for just for breathing and air meaning that um you shouldn't excessively fill your belly with food um and and you know, there should be a portion of it one third to be exact and uh, quite a lot of time uh, if we do excessively eat at night then uh, it becomes very difficult to fall asleep straight away um so islam it says that uh, we should uh look after our health and uh, we should be um eating on time and uh and, and also uh that would help us going to bed early um another narration of the holy prophet peace be upon him he says that kill not your hearts with excessive eating and drinking and uh the the narration which i was mentioning um just earlier the I'll, I'll read that out to you the holy prophet peace be upon him he says that there is no vessel worse for a person to fill than his stomach and a few mouthfuls should suffice to keep him on his feet but if he must eat more then let him fill one third of his stomach with food one third with drink and leave one third for easy breathing so here the holy prophet peace be upon him he has advised us to he's also advised us to wash our hands before and after a meal being the meal with uh, starting the meal with saying bismillah um invoking the blessing of god almighty and to partake of the food that is immediately before us and eat with the right hand and finish by offering gratitude to allah the almighty um also the holy prophet peace be upon him his company was an ideal source for the teachings and trainings of the companions after concluding his public duties he would go home and ask if there was anything to eat and if any if there was an, any food there he would eat and if there was none he would say that all right uh, let us fast today uh, but we will discuss more of the islamic analysis later on um, i'll pass on the mic to brother billy to introduce our next guest now thank you very much uh, we have indeed uh, dr uh, dwayne meller uh, with us thank you very much for joining us uh, on the breakfast show dr meller you're welcome it's nice to be talking to you likewise um tell me um, do you think eating late uh, is a major issue if so what are the main risk of eating late i think it's important to think if you're eating later um particularly for work reasons or uh, faith reasons that you need to eat later in the day um that you think about what you're eating and be mindful and aware of what you're eating so you make sensible choices it can be harder if you go for a long period of time without food to make sensible choices and you tend to like foods that are higher in fat or higher in sugar and salt which may not be as good for you so it's not necessarily the time you eat for most people that matters it's what you choose to eat when you eat at that time there's some research saying that some people benefit eating earlier in the day later in the day but it's not clear cut on who that is i think we still have a lot of control in what we choose to eat at those times and then how we 
we eat, you know, eating with other people. So it's a show social thing. We share the food. So we have those benefits of eating together, not just focusing on sort of the time. It's lo- looking at what we actually eat that's more important. So, so it's w- what you eat is is far more important than than what you when you eat. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because yeah, if you look at people who work shifts night shifts in particular the problem can be that you tend to almost have an extra meal because you have something when you wake up before you go to work then you feel you need something before you go to bed and it might mean you're having four meals a day of a similar sort of size Mm -hmm. rather than three meals if you're working through a day so it's looking at overall the pattern of what you eat and how much you're eating and the quality of that food whether it's got lots of vegetables you know things like pulses in there which you know people are eating less of these days than they used to but they're really healthy nuts seeds and being careful with the things like the fatty meats and sort of particularly the sweet foods as well which we can tend to eat particularly late in the evening if we're tired and we want to eat more of that sort of food mm-hmm. uh, so what do you make make of this study I, I, I don't know whether you're familiar with this uh, but this is something we picked up in science daily um, where there there uh, are uh, considering when you eat as uh, as a factor, there's a there's a number of studies that have been doing over the past sort of ten to fifteen years, um, and sort of there's the myth where you eat breakfast like a king and then you yeah. sort of face down the food for the day. And if you look at studies, the way they can be designed, it can be more controlled so that happens. And in the real world, you've got to fit it around your social situation you haven't got a choice when your job is and you might not be able to eat the way you're choosing these studies so yes it can show a benefit in some of these trials but i think when we look at population studies where we look at people over a long period of time it's less clear cut Mm. and it's people who are more in control of what they eat and have you know this uh, sort of social science called the word agency belief control identity in what they eat and why they eat at that time Mm rather than just mindlessly just eating for the sake of food because um, they, they need to at the end of a busy day. Right. And uh, how many um, how many meals per day are recommended? And uh, are, there, are, there, are there certain times during the day which are considered to be best or suitable times to have these meals? I know the emphasis is on, on content as far as yeah. you're concerned. Uh, but, um, um, you know, if timing is a factor, then we, we, what is better? It is tricky. So if someone's got a health condition and medication works better with food, that's one thing to think about. So you need to plan your eating around that so you can get the best out of your medication to keep yourself healthy. Then if you're looking at it, there are some studies that will say having smaller meals a day is better. So the six meals a day in, in one study I think was in women, but in men, they didn't show that effect. So it's a bit hit and miss. My piece of advice would be is if you can eat spread your food through the day that might help you to concentrate it might help you to think about your food a little bit more but don't eat more so if someone doesn't eat breakfast it's not necessarily the best thing to start eating breakfast food there but maybe if there's some leftovers from the night before and you can you can eat it the next day which is a very traditional way of having breakfast rather than having particular breakfast food so you're spreading food out through the day that can be better and if that's the case I'd probably suggest sort of three meals a day is a pretty good pattern for most people, but at least two. I wouldn't generally sort of encourage people just to have one meal a day. If you mm-hmm. if you're in a sort of a sort of busy lifestyle where you sort of don't have that time to eat, 
I'd encourage people to try and get sort of 20 minutes in the middle of the day to have a break. And that's a good time to eat because it's not just about eating. It's having breaks and times to refresh our minds so we can be at our best to do our work or, or do what our, our tasks are. Hmm. I've got a couple of colleagues who would also be asking you a few questions. I hope you don't mind. No problem. Uh, thank you for joining us this uh, morning, Dr. Duane. Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, with regards to obesity itself. Um, one of the main uh, health risk links uh, with diet is obesity. So what diseases and conditions can uh, living with obesity be linked to? So um, probably the main one we're looking at is type 2 diabetes. Particularly if we carry more weight around our middle, that can mean our liver and pancreas don't work as well. So the pancreas is the organ that makes the insulin, which helps our muscles to use glucose, sugar from our diet. And our liver actually helps regulate that. And if we have a lot of weight around the middle, that can resist the action of the insulin. So the glucose levels can rise, so that can increase risk of type 2 diabetes. And that's associated with long-term risks to do with the eyes, the kidneys, and the heart in particular. If you look at obesity, that's also an independent risk for things like cardiovascular disease or heart disease, but also things like stroke and problems with high blood pressure. There are also a number of cancers that are, are linked to um, increased risk with obesity. They go from sort of some, some sort of cancers of the colon to prostate cancer in men, breast cancer post after menopause in women. So there's a number of conditions, and then we've got to look at sort of the mobility as well so even if someone is living with a higher body weight if they can maintain their mobility that's going to help with that aspect of it and also we, we know that um, living with obesity can affect their mental health so it's important that we support people who are struggling with their weight so they don't feel stigmatized so they can engage in society and the the, the risks of the obesity can be reduced as they're trying to live a healthier life thank you and and also um I wanted to ask, eating late at night, does that also affect uh, uh, on how much weight we gain as well? For example, if we uh, tend to eat later during the night, does that have a effect on our body more than if we would eat uh, maybe slightly earlier? Is there any correlation? There's a little bit of evidence from humans. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence from laboratory studies of rodents who, instead of being at night, it's in the morning. If you feed a rat during the day, it'll tend to put on weight. Um, so that's where a lot of this is built on. And there's a little bit of that in humans, but it's not as clear cut. What probably matters more is what we choose to eat. And it's probably that our food choices are less sensible if we leave it till later at night. Um, the only other thing probably about eating at night which can have a negative effect and we don't probably talk about this enough is if we have a heavy meal late at night that can disturb our sleep pattern mm. if we don't get enough good quality sleep that's associated with the risk factors of gaining weight and increased risk of heart disease as well so it's having a sensible melanin so we can still sleep well probably isn't a problem and if we look at sort of um during ramadan when people are fasting if people look at how they eat and eat sensibly, they can actually lose weight and improve their risks of these conditions. Um, so, so it is possible to, to have that pattern and be healthier. It, it's all dependent on the sort of foods that people choose to eat. Thank you. And also, to what extent uh, do you think our diet plays a role in the development of certain health conditions such as diabetes, cancer, etc.? 
So first of all, if it's okay, we, we're talking about type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where the body attacks its own pancreas cells or the cells that make insulin, and that's got nothing to do with diet. So it's nothing to do with eating too many sweets as a child. It is purely down to sort of the way the immune system sort of attacks the pancreas. Type 2 diabetes, there is a link, and it's linked partly through, or mainly through sort of that weight gain and physical inactivity. In certain extents, sort of cancers in a similar ways linked to the weight gain, but also physical inactivity. So it's a combination of physical activity, and that doesn't need to be going to the gym. It's sort of it can be things like walking, sort of acts of daily living. So trying to be as active as a day and trying to spend less time sitting down, um, and that's a combination of what you call aerobic work, which is could be walking briskly or even running if you're able and doing some strength work which doesn't need to be lifting weights it can be sort of moving things around sort of within the garden or through a, through a job uh, and and that can help reduce your risk of, of developing both type 2 diabetes and certain cancers if you're talking about diet it's trying to have a diet which in some ways you can call to be a little bit more simple and traditional so it's based on the vegetables it's having more fiber in there so so whole grains sort of uh, and also things like uh, lentils and beans in a diet and being careful with the fatty meats and uh, sort of the sugars and and the sweet foods uh, as well oh yeah for the benefit of our listeners would you like to discuss some of the common strategies used to encourage healthy eating so i i think the first thing is I think you probably forget it. It's, you need to enjoy your food, and you should try and enjoy it with other people. You know, food is a social thing for humans, and when we eat on our own and eat in isolation, we don't tend to eat as well. So I think that's a forgotten thing, if I can mention that first. The next one I would suggest is trying to base their meals on vegetables and including more things like the lentils, the beans, the pulses as a base, and then sort of having probably a fifth size amount of either the, the rice the, the potato or sort of the bread to go with that and having sort of if you imagine the palm of your hand without your thumb and your fingers that sort of thickness and size that's the size for a portion of meat so it's around about four ounces if you want to weigh it out or 125 grams and, and sort of you have that sort of probably once twice a day is sort of maybe have more of the the, the plant-based ones which which the dolls are a really good example of um or, or the other sort of bean dishes the other thing is sort of maybe having water with meals as well because we forget that sort of our appetite is partly how our stomach feels so if we're having a drink of water with meals that can help us feel fuller so in less so we need to eat, eat more food and potentially overeat uh, uh, dr Mello, before you go what what's your take on uh, on uh, snacking i think the, the problem with snacking is one we talked about earlier is being aware of what you're eating we can tend to graze unmindfully and just over consume food so that, that's not necessarily healthy for the mind or body the other one on snacking is, is extra food so say if you have something like, like a little bit of yogurt or, or something after a meal like a piece of fruit if you save that from the meal and have that in between the meal as a snack you're not eating extra food and it's a healthy option so if you feel the need to snack and it's probably better to see what you can oh well, I'll say the word borrow for the meal and have a little bit later rather than putting extra food in there mm-hmm. uh, we do have a sort of a, a significant number of people in our society who are struggling with their weight because they've been ill and may have lost weight 
then having the extra calories and the extra snacks in there can be essential to build them back up after a period of illness. But for most people where we're trying to keep our weight steady or maybe lose a little bit of weight, I think moving the food from the mealtime to make a snack if you're getting hungry can be a good option. Right. Uh, and you said earlier that we don't tend to eat well when we're on our own. And um, I suppose you said, you're suggesting that we eat better when we're together. What do you mean by eating well? Is it the quality of the food or the quantity? It, it could be both. You know, there are studies showing that when people share food, they tend to make sort of sensible choices. Okay, if it's a banquet and there's lots of food and table and a party, well, people tend to eat more. But in a normal sort of family meal or a setting where you're sharing food, you're more aware of what you're eating because you're in the moment. You're thinking about what you're eating. Whereas if you've sort of had a busy day at work and you're just grabbing food and sitting down in front of a TV, you tend to think less about the amount of food and the volume of food you eat, and so you might not make such healthy choices. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. It was very informative, uh, your contribution. Thank you very much for coming on uh, to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Um, that was Dr. Dwayne Miller. He's uh, a double award-winning registered dietitian, uh, is uh, at the Aston Medical uh, School, the lead for nutrition and evidence-based medicine, uh, having a background in clinical diet, uh, dietetics, supporting people living with diabetes. He moved into medical education when joining uh, the uh, Aston University. is also the Associate Dean for Public Engagement in the College of Health and Life Sciences. Uh, really su- works to support innovative teaching practice alongside engaging students as fellow professionals on the first steps of their careers. So a very well uh, um, informative contribution that we had uh, from him just a few moments ago. Uh, Imam Zakir, over to you, sir. I mean, he, he did also mention Ramadan as well, <coughs> that uh, Ramadan is a great way of uh, <coughs> of losing weight and mm. uh, Staying healthy, um, but I, th- I think now nowadays uh, in Ramadan, people tend to be gaining more during the month yes. of Ramadan than than, than yeah. losing it. I think yeah, but I think what, what uh, the doctor alluded to is that because that it's because of the choice of food yes. that determines uh, whether they're going to lose or gain weight. But you're right. Um, yes, uh, people do gain weight and I think I've gained weight <laughs> Ramzan, uh, on during some Ramzan not all, all Ramzan and I've always wondered why uh, but that's always the case I think is is the reason being is because we um, for a long period of time we you know abstain from food so when it is time for food we tend to consume more than we should to be honest um, mm. uh, however the if we look at the life of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him um, or even if we look at our Khalif he's, he has also mentioned that uh, he would eat very simply um, uh, small amounts mm. uh, just like he would on a, on a, on a daily basis mm. um, and, and uh, that, that should have effect on, on your body as well mm. um, I mean, it's an interesting topic and we'll go more into detail mm. as to what the Islamic analysis of this is um, after the 8 o'clock news. Uh, it's when the gap is, is longer between the opening of the fast and uh, going to bed with the uh, days becoming uh, shorter during Ramzan. That's where the danger lies because you tend to eat uh, when the fast opens mm. and then also eat 
uh, uh, during dinner and uh, therefore you have two sometimes you tend to have two big meals mm. um, in the evening and that's what makes you fat <laughs> to put it bluntly <laughs> that's what we need to avoid so now that uh, Ramzan is uh, moving on to days that are shorter uh, this is something that we have to be uh, very wary of Absolutely. I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, anyway, you were saying. Yes. Uh, so, yes, uh, hopefully we'll be back after the 8 o'clock news and uh, we'll go more into uh, detail as to, um, you know, what's the Islamic analysis on this particular uh, item. But if any of our listeners do want to uh, call, if they do want to get in touch, remember the number to call is, is as always, 0286877878. Or you can also tweet to us at uh, Voice of Islam UK or to listen to any of our programs such as The Breakfast Show or The Drive Time, uh, which is on weekdays uh, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, you can tune in on, on our DAB or also you can go on our website for any other information. Uh, so don't go anywhere. We we're just going to be listening to the 8 o'clock news and we'll be back shortly after this. of Islam Radio. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with Imam Tawkeet and we, Imam Farid Ahmed and myself, Farid Ahmed. The time is three minutes past eight. It's Friday the 28th of October 2022. We were uh, talking about uh, this particular study uh, reported in the Science Daily uh, entitled Eating Late Increases Hunger, Decreases Calories, Burned and Changes Fat Tissue. And we had uh, a discussion with Dr. Dwayne Meller on the particular subject. We were also looking at the Islamic standpoint that was relevant uh, to this particular story. Uh, Imam Toki had, in fact, started that. Um, so, uh, without further ado, let him continue. Yes. So, uh, God Almighty has commanded uh, that we eat only what is the uh, yeah, so that is food that is good and wholesome uh, and something may be halal but uh, it may not be tayyab and thus should be avoided and Islam teaches that the condition of the body it affects the condition of the spirit and thus great care should be taken to keep one's body healthy and fit uh, I mean that's that's the correct uh, term for tayyab and halal right if if there is uh, anything more you do want to add to that for imam farid oh uh, yeah, you can do so um, 
apart from the broader categories of what's lawful and unlawful, there's another category which is fit for you and not fit for you. So tayyib means which is fit for you, as in something which could be very sweet and very delicious. But if it's not good for your health, if you're suffering from some disease or condition, then you should avoid it. Mm. doesn't mean that, okay, it's halal, so I'm just going to consume it. It, w- it wouldn't come under the category of tayyib yeah, because it it's not good for your body. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And plus, uh, if you could say, for time being as well, it's not just that your body doesn't support that. For time being, let's say, for you could say for a few months you could avoid something just to, you could say, uh, keep your body healthy and once your body is recovered, then you might just go back to that thing. So just for time being as well, not just for the entire life, for time being as well. So just to, you could say, recover maybe or just to cut down on the weight. The uh, the tayyib is just what's fit for you at that right point, Mm -hmm. right moment. Mm -hmm. So someone who uh, who who should avoid maybe let's say red meat as it's not good for his body uh, that would not b- red meat then would not be tayyib for him because the more he eats it he'll uh, have an effect on uh, on his health so he sh- he should avoid um, he should avoid eating red meat so in in that scenario uh, red meat would be would not be good for that person right I absolutely because the uh, thing is if you eat something which is not good for you but you just enjoy it you're in a way damaging your own body and mm. that's not allowed in Islam and even you could say doctors advise against it as well so it is a practice which well, I know it goes on but it's not good for your body in the long run okay great thank you so much for that so um, Muslims uh, believe that everything in this universe is created by God Almighty and humans uh, beings are placed in this world with the purpose to strive and become the best version of themselves and to, be, to become the best versions of ourselves we need to hone our physical, spiritual, intellectual, moral and social facilities and skills and to help us maximize these facilities God has provided us with various resources and one of these resources is our physical body which is required to undertake the acts of righteousness good deeds for our spiritual and moral progress and to look after and enhance this precious resource meaning our human body islam provides a comprehensive guide uh, guidance system and food is one of the most important provisions for the survival and health of human body and the islamic system of guidance encourages human beings to consume food that is beneficial for their development and prohibits them from eating food that can be detrimental to their physical and moral spiritual health. So the the Holy Quran, the major Islamic philosophy uh, encompassing all human activities, uh, the Quran says to adopt the middle path and uh, this is found in uh, this injunction is found in chapter 2 verse 144 where the holy quran says that and thus we have made you a moderate nation and this means that muslims ad- are advised to avoid extremes of any kind and to avoid the mi- and to adopt the middle path and even when it comes to the consumption of food the islamic teachings are based on the same principle that when choices about food avoid all extremes Uh, take the middle path and practice moderation in consuming all plant and non-plant-based foods and uh, that also comes to the amount of how much you consume as well 
so adopting the middle path here would be that uh, as mentioned by the holy prophet peace be upon him that eat one third drink one third uh, so that would be the moderation set out by the holy prophet peace be upon him himself and also um, God Almighty at another place in chapter 7 verse 32 it says that O children of Adam Adam, look to your adornments at every time and place of worship and eat and drink but exceed not the bounds surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds and in this verse uh, it embodies a basic commandment about eating and drinking and the word exceed not the bounds signify that one should not overeat and that one should not always use the same kind of food but should vary it from time to time excess of any kind of any type of food is prohibited and muslims are commanded to balance their food intake of animals and plant resources depending upon their physical needs and environmental obligations and personal choice and uh, also at another place of the holy quran um, the holy quran it, it mentions in chapter 2 verse 173 and 74 that god almighty says that and he has made unlawful to you only that which dies of itself and blood and the flesh of swine and that which the name of any other uh, than Allah has been invoked but he who is driven by necessity uh, being neither disobedient nor exceeding the limits it shall be no sin for him and surely Allah is most forgiving and merciful and the th here the three categories are prohibited uh, because they are harmful to the body uh, that which is harmful uh, to the body is also harmful to the spirit and the last prohibition relates to something which is directly harmful morally and spiritually as it amounts to association of other gods and Allah has made the provision uh, that a believer may use prohibited food uh, if absolutely necessary um, and it is a matter of life and death um, anything here Imam Farid that you do wanted to mention oh yeah, just the last bit so basically even if a food is fit for you it's lawful and everything uh, but if someone else's name is invoked on it then you're simply not allowed to eat it it becomes unlawful so it doesn't have to be you could say a sugary diet or full of oil something which is harmful for your health but it's more to the spiritual side of it that it hurts you spiritually rather than physically that's the fourth category and and when here in this particular verse where God Almighty says uh, that you should also not eat the flesh of swine if you could uh, elaborate on that I mean the word if we use um, not the word swine if we use it in Arabic uh, it is, uh, for example, in in uh, in Urdu, uh, is the word which is used is sur, and now the word this word, um, as also explained by the promised Messiah peace be upon him, he says that uh, the root word of even this particular word is suun ara, that uh, you know something not good which I see or or something bad which I see. Now, even looking at that root word of of this, it shows that uh, if if you look at the habit of a swine itself, uh, as you know, it uh, sleeps within dirt uh, or it consumes dirt as well, 
so eating a an animal like that would also have a negative effect even on the body so hence uh, you know the Quran says that you should avoid the flesh of the swine as well but if, if there's anything else you, you do want to elaborate on that oh yeah, in Arabic it says that lahm uh, al so the meat of the swine and the other thing which you mentioning about the swine is that plus it's not just that his habits and the, the animal's habits more, more than that it's the food that you eat made of the pig you can say meat it has some diseases linked to it as well and I was you could say studying some thing where he, they said that tapeworm is also a kind of you could say a parasite which can enter your body through this you could say uh, pig mm-hmm. or pork if you want to call it in the other w- words so it's not good for your health plus the you could say the animal has got some weird you could say lifestyle and uh, it doesn't really it goes against the norms of Islam so it does affect you spiritually and mentally eating this you could say the particular animal this is the reason why the Holy Quran said that it's forbidden so it's not just that something you should enjoy eating or and Islam just said that okay don't eat it there's a reason for it it's not just you could say uh, for you could say, uh, it imposes on you something which is might be good absolutely and, and I remember listening to a question and answer session of the fourth caliph as well on uh, on how he explains that uh, you know eating an animal or any animal has a very profound effect on you and when it comes to the characteristics of a swine um, they have known that uh, they would even often eat their own piglets um, and uh, another characteristic of a swine is that they, they've seen that if we look in the animal kingdom uh, generally uh, if there is a male and a female um, you know and, and another male uh, tries to interfere the both males would end up fighting uh, whereas within within the looking at the characteristics of a swine uh, if there's a male pig and a female pig and a male pig also tries to interject then they're, they're they're completely fine with it. There there is no fighting between another. That why why are these uh, two pigs mating? Rather, uh, there would be no conflict whatsoever. So we see that there are certain characteristics of of a swine itself, and reason being that is why within Islam it is prohibited. Um, uh, so so moving more swiftly on this uh, particular subject, I would like to end. Uh, this this particular um, item with with the saying of the promised Messiah peace be upon him, the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, f- in which he writes in the philosophy and the teachings of Islam, and he says, and I quote, that our experience shows that various diet uh, definitely affects the faculties of mind and soul, and it should be understood that according to the Holy Quran. The natural state of man is intimately related to his moral and spiritual states, so much so that even his eating and drinking habits affect his moral and spiritual states. That is why the Holy Quran emphasizes that the physical cleanliness and physical uh, moderation of four prayers and inner cleanliness and devotion, after careful consideration, one concludes 
that this is the true philosophy and that physical organs have great effect on the soul. Um, so with that, uh, we'll conclude this particular segment. Uh, thank you very much, Imam Tukir, Imam Farid. Moving on, uh, like you've indicated, uh, we have to now approach the second of our main topics. Uh, and this is entitled, Researchers Detect Early Deprivation Continues to Affect Brain Development Well Into Adolescence. It's something that's going to be introduced to us by Imam Farid in a minute. But uh, let me just say that uh, it is something that we picked up from the Science Daily website. And we hope to be speaking to Dr. Thomas uh, Campbell on this. Uh, he's uh, um, um, a qualified clinical psychologist uh, and has uh, and has engaged with diverse client groups since qualification. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what uh, he has to offer. He's a neuropsychologist, a clinical neuropsychologist. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as I said, it'll be very interesting to see uh, what his take is on this particular topic. So, without further ado, um, Imam Farid, uh, please tell us what this subject is about. Oh yeah, so basically the topic we have today is um, the second topic. The researchers detect early deprivation continues to affect brain development well into adole- adolescence. After the fall of communism, communism in Romania, thousands of children were discovered in discovered in institutional orphanage across country <coughs> because high because of high child to caregiver ratio, their children were neglected. With overall low levels of caregiving and very regimented non-individualized care without a foster care program at the time in uh, Romania. The University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill researchers Charles Ziena, Charles Nelson and Nathan Fox set up a new grant-funded foster care intervention program this program was sup- well supported with frequent visits by a dedicated team of social workers to foster families. Children were randomly selected to participate in the foster care program, providing scientists an unusual opportunity to study what happens to children's brain, brains when they're deprived of affection and emotional connection. A new study by the group published on October 7th in science advances show that early deprivation continues to affect the brain development well into adolescence. Sheridan and his team of researchers from the Bucharest Early Interventions Project published their findings today in Science Advances. The research shows that children who were randomly placed out of institutional care and well and into well-supported foster care before the age of three had changes in areas of the brain that support high-order problem-solving years later. When the children were 16, in addition, children placed into high-quality foster care before three years old saw typical brain development from nine years to 16 years in areas related to emotional reactivity, language, and executive function, but this pattern was altered to children who were deprived of family care. Here we show that the the opportunities that a child has in early life to learn and grow 
will impact not just their behavior but their actual development brain development and the brain structure for years to come says Sheridan children need invested caregivers supporting their development from very early age the Bucharest early intervention pro- project launched in 2001 is a landmark study of the impact of institutionalization a severe form of neglect on children develop in child development it is the only randomized controlled trial for foster care as an alternative to institutional rearing between the ages of 6 and 33 months 68 children were removed from orphanage and placed in high quality foster care families who received foster children were frequently visited by social work and given significant financial support which helped families integrate and provide support thank, thank, uh, thank you, you for that thank we have got uh, our expert dr thomas campbell with us uh, dr campbell thank you very much for coming on to speak to us no. at the uh, voice of Islam. thanks very much for inviting me Great. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, what kinds of uh, child deprivation and uh, neglect uh, are in existence? Well, I think there are several um, aspects to child deprivation, and 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 each one of the the, the the different types of deprivation has different effects. But I think we need to just take a step back and look at what normal child development looks like, and the the developing brain is a social brain. So we are social animals. We need relationships for our brains to develop. And without nurturing warm relationships, our brains suffer. And I think the the Bucharest Early Intervention Study was a very good example of that because as you've already said, there was, uh, uh, it was a randomized controlled trial. Um, There were children who were in institutional care and children who were removed from institutional care into high-quality foster environments, and then children, who, and they were compared with children who were never in care. So the children who were in care had a smaller brain volume uh, of about six percent. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the important brain structures, such as the hippocampus and the amygdala, uh, were less developed in those children who were in institutional care. And we know that this is important um, in, in, in terms of the development of an ability to regulate one's emotions, uh, to um, be able to develop socially, to develop social relationships. Uh, and these are incredibly important factors in, in the development of all of, in every human being, um, we, we, because we are, we are social animals. Mm. So, there are lots of different kinds of deprivation uh, that come from different sources. So, poverty is a is a is a is a big source of deprivation. Um, child sexual abuse is is a source of deprivation. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, and they they all have uh, effects on the developing brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. Um, um are we talking about uh, just um, emotional attention that is given or are we also talking about diet and food and sustenance 
that is provided that uh, leads to deprivation. Absolutely, and then I think there's a very, very complicated uh, interplay between those factors. So, <laughs> poor nutrition obviously leads to inadequate nourishment of the brain. The brain is our biggest organ. It requires the most um, um, nutrients. It is the organ that requires the most blood because it is the most complicated organ. Mm -hmm. So it needs a lot of nourishment. So if that nourishment is not there, then the brain is definitely going to suffer. Right. So, so, so there's that factor. But then there are the other factors. Because we are social animals, we are social beings, uh, we require social relationships for our brains to develop. So if we do not have good social relationships, um, and in the case of children and babies, what that means is relationships with caregivers. Caregivers, caregivers need to be warm, they need to be paying attention to, to the child's needs, they need to be engaged with children, they need to be promoting play, uh, being curious about the child's experience, and that is, that is the mechanism through which our, our brains develop. But can I, can I, my colleague has a question as well, but before he, he asks his question, can I just be clear on this? Are you, are you also saying that a lack of, of emotional, attention, emotional, emotional attention will also have a bearing on the physical development of the brain? Absolutely. Really? And that was what the, that's what the Bucharest study showed. So the children in the orphanages were fed they were fed as well as any of the other children mm -hmm. but what they didn't have was attention mm -hmm. and their brains were 6% smaller right right thank you uh, thank you for joining us this morning uh, Dr. Thomas uh, I wanted to ask you what is uh, attachment disorders and how can these be overcome so uh, attachment disorders uh, again occur within the context of of our social relationships. So we need to be attached to our caregivers to make sense of the world, to, uh, be, to be assisted in developing uh, our, our skills, our understanding of the world. We need adults, uh, when we're children, we need, need adults to interpret the world for us. And if we don't have access to that, that results in, in, in one of two things. One is where children become withdrawn uh, because they can't trust that their needs will be met. So they become a bit shut down. They become um, 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 emotionally introverted. They, they respond less to, to attention. They don't seek caregiving. Uh, so these are the kind of children who are mistrustful, they are a bit usually quite silent, they are quite wary. And the other effect it can have is it, it, the, the, an attachment difficulty will result in children who are seeking attachments with everybody. So they are less wary of strangers, they, are, they have perhaps uh, poorer about physical boundaries. So they, they are the kids who you see them in the playgrounds, they are they are bumping into other kids. They're trying to insert themselves into other kids' games. They they annoy other kids because they're looking for they're looking for uh, um, they're looking for attention and 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 relationships. But but they don't get it, of course, because they become annoying. So attachment, poor attachment, 
is it's essentially a, a lack of trust. If if you don't believe and if you don't feel that your needs are being met by your caregiver, it doesn't matter who the caregiver is. It can be a parent, it can be an auntie, an uncle, a grandparent. It, in, in a sense, it, it, it doesn't really matter who the person is as long as that they are reliable, consistent, they are curious uh, about the child and they are they are warm and they're demonstrating that they they want to know about the child and if that if that trust doesn't exist then then you have a problem then children develop problems in either one or two ways they become anxious and avoidant or they become um, um, disinhibited perhaps um, and seeking seeking relationships with lots of different kinds of people Thank you. Uh, my colleague here, uh, he also has a question that he wanted to ask you, so um, I'm just going to pass the mic on to him. Hi, good morning. What supports morning. and services are available and what more can be done perhaps by government to improve the situation of some children? Um, well, I think, you know, obviously schools are incredibly important places um, where children develop their, obviously their learning and the their uh, their skills to to be able to make their way in the world um, um, and they are they are important places where we all forge friendships sometimes we forge friendships for like for life um, but they are places where we we are able to keep an eye on children so having good school environments and having you know well educated staff who are, who are you know aware that it, schools don't just perform the function of of teaching children um, um, ad- academic things, but they are also important places where children develop socially and emotionally. So schools are incredibly important um, places of, of keeping an eye on children. Um, um, we used to have the Sure Start program in the UK, um, and that was a an amazing project which, which sought to identify children who were at risk and then to put things in place to um, to to give them um, um, better advantages, but that that was that was that that was disbanded by by in a, in 2012, I think. I think caregiver information is really important. Adults really need to to know that how they are with children, with their own children, with other people's children, really really matters. Being emotionally regulated controlling one's anger, being able to be consistent, be reliable, uh, being being able to be curious uh, about children's experience by being able to talk to them. These are all ways in which children uh, feel understood um, and give them a model for uh, how, how, how relationships can be. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Thomas. And uh, also, just adding to that, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, these children uh, who do need extra support, um, is extra support given to them uh, for their educational development as well in schools, colleges, or even at university? I think sometimes, but it's very patchy, and it can be, you know, resources in schools are, are limited. Um, and there's always a question of funding. Um, so you know, f- for the children whose whose needs are are great, they're probably they will probably be picked up, and and probably some additional resource will be given to them. But lots and lots of children, you know, something like thirty percent of children need additional support, and thirty percent of children do not get it. 
So, you know, we, and we know that for those kids, their outcomes in life are, are affected by that. Um, they have higher rates of depression and anxiety as adults. They have poorer medical outcomes. They have higher rates of heart disease. They have higher rates of arthritis. They have higher rates of cancer. And the, the reasons for that are complicated, but it's something to do with the, 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 the hormone cortisol. And cortisol is produced when we feel stressed. We, we, we all produce it. It's that sense of, um, 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 of having extra energy, having extra um, an ability to, to pay attention because we're, we're under stress. But, and that's fine for a short period. But when we, when we experience that over a longer term, cortisol becomes toxic. It actually starts to affect our cells. It's our own body produces something that, that affects our, 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 our organs. Um, and we know that sustained levels of cortisol over long periods of time actually starts to damage our organs. So these, these children have poorer medical outcomes in adults because of the um, um, the damage sustained by by uh, cortisol levels in childhood. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Thomas. Also, you've done a lot of work um, on HIV, both in here in the UK and also other parts of the world. I want to ask you a question about this. Um, how can this condition have an impact on parents and children psychologically um, and as well as affecting brain development and how can hurdles associated uh, with this be overcome? Well, that's a great question. Um, I, I think the great thing about HIV is is that, the, and the good, the good news about HIV is that it is, it is a manageable disease. We have moved from a point 30 years ago where, where people died of AIDS and there was nothing to be done about that to a position where we have medication that if people start the, the medication early enough, their their lifespan will be as long as anybody else. They will do as well as anybody else. But the 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 issues are about identifying HIV early enough, and the UK particularly has done amazing work in antenatal clinics and in, in identifying women with HIV and treating uh, the woman and the the, the child at as early a point as possible. Now, you know, if if the if the mother can be identified in pregnancy and, and starts medication, often uh, the transmission of HIV can be prevented. So the baby will not have HIV. And that's an amazing, it's almost like a miracle uh, because, you know, 30 years ago, it, it, the situation was, was, was desperate. So, you know, the, that, that's a really good position to be in. But the bulk of HIV is in developing countries. It, it's, it's, in, it's in Africa, it's, a, it's in Asia. Um, and access to medication, access to treatment, access to antenatal healthcare is, is often much more patchy, much more broken, much more um, less accessible for all sorts of reasons. People don't have money to get to antenatal clinics because they are far away. Um, and they, they can't leave jobs, they have child-caring responsibilities, lots of different reasons prevent, prevent people from getting access to healthcare. Um, and one of the things about HIV is that is we know that HIV gets into people's brains, 
um, and and it starts to to affect um, people's brain function. Um, and for children, often it's seen in quite subtle ways. Um, often they have poorer abilities to organise themselves, poorer um, emotional regulation. What I mean by that is poorer ability to control the feelings, poorer ability to um, um, perhaps think about what, what might be in the minds of other people. Why, why did my friend shout at me? Why did, and, and figure out ways of solving those kinds of problems. Um, the, the good news is that once people do start treatments, treatments are highly effective. Um, they prevent onward progression of the disease and people live long, healthy, and hopefully happy lives. Great, thank you so much. Uh, I'm just going to pass uh, the mic on to uh, Brother Willie, if he de- de- has any final words. No, I, I think you've covered uh, the subject very well. I just want to thank you for coming on and uh, contributing to, to our show. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, Imam Tuki, we, we have to uh, move on now um, and um, give uh, the Islamic uh, point of view. Uh, there's a tweet about uh, breakfast, whether we've had breakfast. I wonder whether that's a real comment on the energy that we're putting into this show. <laughs> I hope it isn't, but uh, it's from KB, or regular benefactor. Um, so I hope uh, you, usu- usually it's KB who brings the breakfast to us. So yes, he didn't do it today. We're very much missing him today. <laughs> mm. So perhaps that's uh, there's a hint to him as to uh, what he should be doing next week. Uh, I'm I'm quite optimistic. Uh, you you never know. We might see KB uh, mm. very soon. Oh, bre- <laughs> 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 bringing bringing uh, breakfast himself. Oh, good, excellent. Yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, on to serious stuff now. Uh, there's an Islamic angle to this, isn't it? Uh, Abs- the subject that we've been covering. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, we've covered this uh, subject many times here on the Voice of Islam Breakfast Show. And, uh, you know, what's the best way to look after your children or to inculcate the best um, uh, morals with, within children? And uh, looking at starting off with uh, what the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has said um, at one place. He said that respect your children and cultivate in them the best manners. So Islam has defined the rights of parents over children and vice versa. And on the one hand, it emphasizes service and respectful behavior to parents. And on the other, commands parents to treat their children with due understanding and regard and to handle them in such a way as endangers in them feeling of dignity and self-respect and to attend to their education and training in particular so that when they grow uh, they become the they became they become a great asset to the society um, and uh, with their due priority their duties to God and his servants become pioneers of national progress and at another place the holy prophet peace be upon him he said that the which means that adorn yourself with divine qualities and one should not worry too much if their heart is not in it one should 
persist in doing good as a duty and one should continue to be charitable even if charitable acts hurts one and one should go on praying even when one is unable to cons- concentrate the important thing to remember is that duties must be performed with stu- studied intent and without losing heart and the promised messiah peace be one used to relate the story um which i have also related a number of times um so that th- that's one particular uh, another injunction by the holy prophet peace be upon him um there there is one very important uh, story that the promised messiah peace be upon him he quite often used to narrate in uh, the right upbringing of children and uh, he, he used to mention a story of of a, of a mother and her child and uh, he he used to say that the child he had a habit of stealing from a very young age and the mother every time he stole something or he did something his mother will always protect that child um and uh, if if someone did complain about the child she would always say that uh, it's not his fault or she, she she would make up an excuse and would not stop that habit of hers until it say it says that it is, it is narrated that that particular child he grew up and he became a thief until he became caught in a in a in some in a crime he had committed and he was sentenced to death and when he was sentenced to death uh, he was asked if there is any last wish he has and he said that he wishes to speak with his mother that was his last wish of that person and so his mother came to meet that person and uh, and he said that i want to i want to kiss your tongue um or i want to suck on your tongue that that's what he said and that that was that was his last last wish last dying wish and so uh this this mother she listened to that uh, boy uh, until uh, it is narrated that uh, or the story is that he ripped the tongue uh, of his mother and everyone was so alarmed as to why he had done this and he said that the reason for his actions was that because from a very young age whenever he did something wrong she would always protect him and she would not tell him off that this is wrong this you've done a bad bad job here you've 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 you know you've stolen here you should have you should not have done that so his mom mother had always protected him so he said that had she told me that this was wrong and i shouldn't have done that i would not be to what i am today so the moral of the story is that you know as as a parent we we have a great duty and sometimes uh being too soft on your children can also uh have detrimental effects in the future um and the best way is always through your actions um and you know to always teach the child the best sort of manners that is why the holy prophet peace be upon him has said uh, that respect your children and cultivate in them the best of manners and whatever is wrong you should tell them that this is wrong and and you should not do it so also uh, the promised messiah peace be upon him um he once said and i quote that think not you are sinners will your prayers be heard do not think like this man makes mistakes but a, a time comes when he is able to over overpower 
his sinning self, this power to overpower uh, the sinning self is also built into the nature of man. Water puts out fire and this is a part of its nature. However, you may heat it. When water drops on fire, it must be put out. That is natural. So is man a purifier by nature? Every man has this purifying property and do not feel defeated because you have been involved in sin. Sin is like a stain of the surface on the surface of a piece of cloth. It can be washed away and your habits and your dispositions may be dominated ever so much by your passions. Pray to God weeping, crying. He will not let your prayers go to waste. He is full of compassion. So here the promised Messiah's message is full of hope. It is the message of the Holy Quran amplified in his style by the promised Messiah and the optimism which penetrates the which permeates the Holy Quran is unequal in any other holy book and the way it is amplified by the promised Messiah is indeed unequaled by any similar writer on the subject and it becomes crystal clear from the promised Messiah's words quoted above that human nature has a built-in something when put to use washes away all sins and sought for resulting improvements in others for all to see so a very beautiful quote of the promised messiah on this particular subject and i i remember uh, a, a a question and answer session of the fourth caliph as well in in which he explains that uh, when it comes to parenting of your of your children it is uh, both the mother and the father's job it is not just the mother's alone um, and he explains this point he says that if if you look at the animal kingdom um, and birds they look after uh, the egg both until the egg hatch- hatches and, and uh, the bird is born so not only does the mother uh, sit on the egg but also so does the male so both of them take turns until the the egg is hatched so similarly when it comes to parenting or looking after children uh, both parents should play their role in uh, looking after the child um, any other words Imam Farid you, you want to add to this this subject yeah I just want to say that Islam gives us a basic structure of family and society so it starts from a father and then a mother and then children now if Islam says that you, you could say there's a father and there's a mother there's a reason for that because now for the first you could say eight to nine years it's mostly the mother she has connection with the you could say the children but after that age especially in the boys as well we've seen that they look up to their fathers and if their fathers are not there then they tend to go to someone else as in their friends or you could say close neighbor they look up to them and they start following them and they get into you can say all sorts of mess if they are related to someone who is in you could say has bad habits so society is built on you could say a good family structure and if there's one of the parents is missing the child do feel it it sometimes you could say that oh yeah this kid is so intelligent or something what that he has recovered from that damage but 
somewhere on in the life he will feel it so this this is the thing that both parents they have a responsibility the mother and the father mostly the mother but uh, like i said after a certain age father as well is equally important and we have seen uh, studies also show that uh, single parents they do struggle somewhere on in the life when they need to bring up their children because they are on, alone and child children also do take an effect of that and and if you could also explain um any any aspect from the life of the holy prophet peace be upon him on how he encouraged the the right uh, upbringing of children or you know any 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 examples you wish to you wish to share here um there's only one example which i could think of is that um someone was you could say showing affection towards his uh, boys and there's another guy who said that well i've never even kissed my own uh, you could say children mm. now holy prophet sallam didn't like it he said that okay if you don't love your children it's not my fault uh, and if god hasn't inculcated in you the love of children then what can we as prophet and you could say the messenger of allah do and so there's a lesson to that that it's not good that you don't you could say neglect your children mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. you need to be involved even if you are a father okay paradise lies under the feet of the mother but father has is equally important after a certain age and after early okay thank you so much for that um also uh, looking at some of the extract from uh, the address that is holiness azam samsur ahmed gave at the annual convention here in the UK in 2017 Uh, he says that both men and women are advised to tread the path of righteousness while keeping tomorrow in mind and it and it is common knowledge that the root cause of every immorality or sin lies in a carelessness attitude towards understanding what god almighty and his prophet desires from us no effort is made to understand the commandments given in the holy quran even through the holy quran provides us with complete guidance for leading our lives so the morrow should not only uh, should not be only the next day of our own life or the hereafter but it also portrays to our children to raise them piously to raise them with the highest morals to raise them with a firm resolve in their faith and to raise them as loyal citizens and to make them excel in every aspect of life and this will not only adorn their lives in this world and their lives in the hereafter and earn the pleasure of god almighty but it also makes us deserving of reward owing to the good upbringing we provide them so god almighty does not let any good deed go by without a reward and then how could he not reward you for the works that you do purely to follow his commandment leaving behind pious children who pray for us will also adorn our future because they will continue our good deeds and pray for us and this will become a means of elevating our ranks in the hereafter so the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings of god almighty be upon him has pointed out that the high status of a true muslim woman his assertion was uh, was not uh, not an emotional or trivial statement in fact by giving women the responsibility of reforming the next generation and securing their future in this world and the next 
He has given their life purpose. In one sentence, he gave women the utmost status while drawing their attention to the responsibilities by saying that paradise lies under the feet of the mother. And in this sentence, he gave glad tidings to women regarding their high status. And paradise lies under the mother's feet because due to their upbringing, the child grows up to be a good citizen, to be an asset for his nation and to be a person who gives precedence to his faith over this world. And it should also be remembered here that moral upbringing is blessed only when the mother is also praying. By watching their mothers pray, children will also be inclined to pray. So the training should not only be an outward training, but it is also important for mothers to pray so that she develops a strong relationship with God Almighty. There is no doubt that fathers should also be kept in mind that their spiritual level and their standard of worship should be very high because after a certain age, boys do start looking up to their fathers. So a, a very beautiful quote extract of uh, His Holiness Azam Zamusuramid. Uh, may Allah the Almighty strengthen his hand from the annual convention in UK in 2017 and very beautifully put that uh, you know where the Holy Prophet peace be upon him he mentions that paradise lies under the feet of the mothers it explains that a great role is played by the mother in the upbringing of the child um, hence uh, you know if, if if mothers do understand this uh, saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in the actual, in 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 its actual sense, they realize that uh, how important it is to, um, you know, if if they set a good example, they will be then uh, making sure that the next generation will also be treading on the path, uh, on the right path, which they too were treading on. Um, so with that, we'll conclude this particular. Uh, segment and I'll hand the mic over to mm. Brother Willie to conclude this. Okay, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, I'm also quite um, intrigued by this uh, um, um, contribution, no, this uh, statement that His Holiness made at the uh, uh, meeting with uh, the Dutch Khudam. If, if you can tell us what that was. Yes, yes. So this uh, this was a sitting His Holiness had in August 2022 and upon being asked about the appropriate way to offer religious and moral training to young children His Holiness he said that Allah the Almighty has said that the moral training of a child should start from birth hence the Holy Prophet of Islam peace and blessings of Allah be upon him told that when a Muslim child is born, the adhan or the ikama call for pr- calls to prayer should be recited to the child so that Allah's name enters his ear from birth. Thus the moral training of a child starts on day one and do not think that a young infinite cannot understand anything. And His Holiness concluded, uh, continued that as the child gets older, explain to him that whatever <coughs> they have uh, has been bestowed by Allah the Almighty and He has fulfilled all their needs and that they should express their gratitude to Him. And when a child reaches the age of seven, you should encourage them to do their prayers as much as possible 
However, at the same time, you should not put a young child under stress or cause them anxiety. Treat them with love and tenderness. The point to remember is that the lessons of a per- lessons a person learns in childhood are often those that last a lifetime. So a, a very, very beautiful... Um, yes, I mean, it, it matches very much with the... Uh, with the findings of this particular research, that it's important to give them um, emotional attention. Mm. And that's what His Holiness was saying. And also the fact that uh, the azan and the karma is not something that's just a trivial matter that is engaged in after uh, the birth of a child, but it has meaning. It can have meaning later on in life as well. Absolutely, that, uh, you know, uh, the fact that uh, from a young age, the the remembrance of God Mm. is put into the ears of the infinite so that, uh, you know, that carries on with him throughout his life. Yeah, certainly not. Thank you very much for that. And right, um, as indicated by Mantoki, we are uh, coming to the end of the show. It leaves us to thank those people who have worked hard in preparing uh, the uh, broadcast, uh, Saqib Munir Ahmed and Barira Saqib Mansoor, uh, were producers of this particular broadcast. Uh, researchers were Kutsi Award, Neha Latif, uh, Salia Bakhtiar, and Hannah Ahmed, so they're all worthy of our gratitude. Uh, Ahmed, uh, well, Adnan Ahmed, Akib Ahmed, Adnan, I forget the order, I apologize if I'm got it right, Akib Ahmed, Adnan was the uh, technician, the engineer who made sure that everything as far as the uh, technical side of things was running smoothly. Thank you to him. Uh, we are very grateful for to uh, our main contributors. They were uh, Dr. Duane uh, Miller. Dr. Duane Miller was, is a double award winning regist- uh, regist- registered dietitian from Aston University. And uh, we were also uh, had the expertise of uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Campbell, who's a neuropsychologist, uh, a clinical neuropsychologist with individuals and families. He also came on to uh, the show to uh, give us um, the benefit of his wisdom in understanding the second of our main uh, topics, which was researchers detect early deprivation continues to affect brain development well into adolescence. So that is uh, the subject in which he gave us uh, further understanding. And then uh, uh, at the top of the, or near the top of the program, we were looking at uh, eating uh, habits, eating late increases hunger, decreases calories burned, burned, and uh, changes fat tissue. So uh, a lot of, uh, um, I, a lot of uh, studies were, a lot of, a lot was covered during uh, this particular uh, broadcast. And thank you for to all our listeners for uh, listening. And uh, we'll be back from Monday to Friday, 7 to 9, on The Breakfast Show. So until then, it's alaikum from all of us here on The Friday Breakfast Show. Uh, soon we'll be having the 9 o'clock news after the short interlude.